Good afternoon, everyone, and, and welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm a vice president here and director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. And, and boy, do we have an interesting uh, discussion here today set up and also a, a different format. We did this on purpose. This is going to be a conversation. You're not going to hear uh, any set speeches except some initial remarks from my State Department colleague, but this is going to be a conversation that flows around this table, and we also want it to flow um, with all of you as well, because these are a lot of new issues, a lot of um, uh, very important and strategic issues, and we want to make sure that the conversation uh, reflects as much input as possible. It's a real privilege for us to have assembled such a distinguished panel of diplomats and leaders for this conversation. This has been the product of a very close and productive collaboration between the Atlantic Council and the Department of State. Uh, Tom Periello and his team at the State Department uh, engaged us during their process developing the quadrennial um, diplomacy and development review. And as a result, um, there are some synergies um, between the strategic review and the insights that they have promulgated earlier this spring and, and some of the discussions and work here at the Atlantic Council under the strategy initiative where we are producing a series of, of what we are calling Atlantic Council strategy papers. The first such paper called Dynamic Stability raised a lot of the issues attendant to the growing role of non-state actors, an issue which I'm sure we'll get into uh, to great degree here. Like our colleagues at the State Department, we too see the urgency for articulating a strategic vision for America's role in the world, and we are taking concrete steps here at the Atlantic Council toward that vision, which we hope will help prepare the United States to work very closely with its allies and partners to deal with tomorrow's challenges, many of which are already upon us, and many of which are quite novel and challenging, but there are also significant opportunities. In his 2014 book, World Order, uh, Henry Kissinger, who among his many other illustrious titles is an Atlantic Council board director, asked, quote, are we facing a period in which forces beyond the restraints of any order determine the future, unquote. Kissinger went on to note that the Westphalian principles of the nation state system that we've accepted for centuries, since 1648, um, are being challenged on all sides, sometimes in the name of world order itself. So today's conversation seeks to address the uncomfortable truth that Dr. Kissinger raised, that the nation state, once the pillar of our global system, is no longer a sufficient order of, uh, sorry, is no longer a sufficient guarantor of order and stability, or so it would seem. And that's the conversation we want to have today. So this spring, the, the QDDR was released, and it marked the culmination of, of years of study and analysis but much more systematically, about a year under the leadership of this gentleman sitting next to me in pursuit of a diplomatic strategy for the future. And I give it very, very high marks for its very novel treatment of not just what's going on in the world and what to make of the trends, but also of a very innovative and very distinctive role for diplomacy in a world that presents a, a number of challenges, but also a number of opportunities. The QDDR identified four strategic priorities for America's foreign policy. I'll just mention them here, um, but I'll, uh, I'm sure um, Mr. Periello will get into it. Defeating violent extremism, fostering open democratic societies, developing inclusive economic growth, and countering climate change. Of these four priorities, at least two directly address the changing role of the nation state. In seeking to turn the tide of violent extremism, Traditional state structures clearly are no longer sufficient uh, 
to contain and control non-state actors within and across their borders. And in committing to inclusive economic growth, we acknowledge the economic forces as well as the intergovernmental economic organizations that influence uh, economic trends and that exist independent in some cases of national authority. Beyond these priorities, a quick look around the world reminds us not only that states are no longer the world's only international influencers, or I should say global influencers, but that in many cases non-state actors now supersede the state. Indeed, ISIS now controls swaths of territory across two states, but we also have significant capacity by non-state actors in many cases greater than the capacity of government actors in domains such as cyber, in domains such as uh, disruptive technologies, in domains such as energy and energy security, and the list goes on. And these are critical tools of statecraft that now need to be reinvigorated to deal with these changing um, trends. We also have organized crime ac accounting for roughly 15% of global GDP. So how governments react to this global shift, how they reach out to this growing non-state actor constituency where that proves productive, will affect the future of the global order and will affect all of our country's roles, all of our country's prosperity, and all of our country's security. The discussants around this table certainly know these trends very well. They deal with them every single day, and we want to draw that out. You have the bios of the speakers available to you, but let me just briefly introduce them. And I think it's particularly noteworthy, as we discussed before the um, session, that three of us have applied mathematics or mathematics degrees in education, and we'll talk about that in the, um, <laughs> in the discussion. Um, we have our uh, friend, the ambassador of Morocco, Rashad Boulal. He's the ambassador of Morocco to the United States, a longtime friend of the council. Um, he previously served as ambassador to Germany uh, and to the European Union, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Paula Dobriansky is a senior fellow of the Future of Diplomacy Project at Harvard. She's an Atlanta Council board director, a huge friend and advocate of the Scowcroft Center, and I really thank Paula um, quite a bit for all of her engagement with us. From May 2001 to January 2009, Ambassador Dobriansky served as Undersecretary of State for Democracy and Global Affairs, and in February 2007 was appointed the President's Special Envoy to Northern Ireland. She established and led the U.S.-India, U.S.-China, and U.S.-Brazil Global Issues Fora. So Paula is deeply steeped and deeply experienced in these issues as well. Luke Minfeli, uh, Iraq's ambassador to the United States and also a frequent contributor to the Atlantic Council. Um, from June 2010 until May 2013, Ambassador Faley served as Iraq's ambassador to Japan. Peter Gondolovich, thank you, uh, is the ambassador of the Czech Republic to the United States. He previously served as a member of the Chamber of Deputies in the Czech Parliament from 2006 to 2011 a very experienced uh, practitioner of diplomacy and expert on foreign affairs. We also have Ambassador Ashok Kumar Mirpuri, uh, lo another longtime friend and engagement engager of the council. He has been Singapore's ambassador to the U.S. since July 2012. He's a very close partner of the Atlantic Council. He's had other distinguished posts and also a, a strategic planning background. Ambassador Juan Gabriel Valdez was appointed Chile's ambassador to the United States on May 21st of last year. Um, prior to this appointment, Ambassador Valdez served as the special representative and head of the UN stabilization mission in Haiti, and also as Chile's ambassador to Argentina from 2003 to 2004. Last but not least, Thomas Periello is the special representative for the QDDR, 
appointed by Secretary of State John Kerry in February 2014. Mr. Perriello previously served as a congressman from Virginia, a special advisor to the prosecutor of the special court for Sierra Leone, a conflict analyst and CEO of the Center for American Progress Action. Uh, before I hand over the floor to Tom for some opening remarks, please note this event is on the record, as you might have guessed, and we are live tweeting the conversation from the Scowcroft Center account, and that's at AC Scowcroft, and we're using the hashtag at AC Strategy. Tom, the floor is yours. Thank you very much uh, to the Atlantic Council and to all of the distinguished uh, diplomatic corps that's present. Um, you all have been tremendous thought partners throughout this process. We've done not only multiple public events here, but also uh, numerous private conversations about grand strategy, about uh, the intelligence landscape, uh, the threat landscape, but also the opportunity landscape. And I think that's one of the things we're going to focus on today, uh, is that these conversations can tend to be either uh, myopically optimistic about how everything is going well or tremendously pessimistic about the world blowing up. And I think what we see here are trends that uh, present both threats and opportunities in the, the changing landscape. So tremendous thanks to the Atlantic Council for uh, their partnership on this QDDR and uh, on this event. Um, in particular, the dynamic stability report that does talk in many ways about this is issue and where uh, I think it ends up using the framework of Westphalia Plus to describe this world, which I think is better than uh, what we used, at least informally, in our QDDR, which was calling uh, this report from Westphalia to the wiki world, uh, which was rejected in the clearance process for being too cute, um, <laughs> but is, uh, does speak to, I think, what we try to talk about in this report. And I think why Westphalia Plus in many ways is more accurate is that in no, by no means does, do the Westphalian units not matter anymore. In fact, they are tremendously important. So we don't want to get into a false binary of understanding just because of the diffusion of power below and beyond the nation state uh, that that means nation states don't matter. And similarly, uh, that the vision that came out of 1945, the, uh, the international order of collective security as we know it today, remains incredibly important and, in, and as we all know, in need of some modernization and update to reflect uh, the world as well as looking beyond it. So uh, I think there's been tremendous thought here and among many of the people present on doing so. Um, there is a strong sense in this report, let me just give a little context on the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review. Um, the first one was initiated by Secretary Clinton um, uh, when she came into office. She had served on the Armed Services Committee and uh, felt like it was quite important that our defense side took a time out every four years and looked at the landscape and said, is this the way we should be doing things or is this just the way we've always done things? Let's look at the threats and opportunities and make sure that our budgets, our management structures, our operations reflect a proactive strategic reading of the world and not just a reactive reading uh, to where things were last year. Um, the QDDR, uh, the first QDDR was ambitious and comprehensive, uh, headed up by Anne-Marie Slaughter um, and uh, created and reorganized much, many bureaus throughout the department. Uh, ours this time um, weighs in at about 40% the length. It is tighter uh, than the last one, which I think is both positive and uh, open to criticism as well for that reason. Uh, but we did try to focus on a limited number of areas that we thought were of particular strategic importance in terms of emphasis in state and USAID. And certainly one of the issues that Secretary Kerry has emphasized is this issue about how to do diplomacy in an era of diffuse and networked power. Uh, and where we see that diffusion, again, is beyond a broader range of states than traditionally we're able to get together and determine uh, the outcome of world events. 
below the nation state, particularly uh, at the layer, level of cities and megacities. Uh, everybody here is, I'm sure, familiar with the urbanization trends of populations and that cities and megacities are increasingly taking on issues that used to be exclusive to the nation state. Immigration issues, trade issues, environment sustainability and cross-border issues, uh, crime and terrorism issues, and the extent to which we need uh, to be able to engage beyond that. So a larger number of states, below the state to, to cities and governorships, um, and then also, of course, beyond the state, as we see in the negative case of ISIS, but we also see in terms of entrepreneurship, we see in terms of the humanitarian sector. And we have seen uh, the number, uh, the, the percent of people living in extreme poverty cut in half in a generation. We do sit on the cusp, potentially, of an HIV AIDS free generation within reach. Uh, we see the growth of a global middle class. Uh, and certainly the decisions that nation states uh, in the global system have made have helped to promote that. Um, but it is also true that it's been an unleashing of forces beyond that. And I think that's one of the most important things to keep in mind, and we speak to it in this report, which is many of the developments today, even some of those that have negative consequences, were part of a grand strategic decision. The vision after World War II of the United States in particular in bringing together uh, various institutions was that we didn't think we would be better off by keeping other countries down. We actually thought the world would be more secure, more stable, by creating development around the world and creating a system of collective security where an increasing number of actors took responsibility uh, for those issues of security and development. And so we see that as being important. Just a couple last notes because we mainly want this to be a conversation. Uh, one of the things that did inform this experience for me was the fact that I have run for elected office in the United States and been a member of Congress. And what I know from that experience, that I'm sure you all know in your own ways, is that if I was going to go in and meet with an elected official in my own country, uh, I wouldn't just look at the biography of that individual. I would ask, who got that person elected? Who can that person not get reelected without? What are the citizen organizations? What are the corporate contributors? What are the media dynamics of that district that shape that? So in many ways, this has always been true, that as we see an increasing number of people living under accountable governance, it's not enough to just know that individual, but to know the political realities that shape uh, the choice set that that individual can make. And I think we've seen kind of a fun, but also deeply, uh, I think, promising example of how these things can interact in recent weeks, and that's the, the FIFA scandal. Here we have an organization that is technically a non-state actor in FIFA, um, but has a very close relationship with governments and is in participation with governments, and is one of the most powerful institutions in the world. And as we continue to see uh, how the corruption case plays out, uh, brought forward by DOJ, uh, many jokes have been made that are true, that it's probably the only time my Twitter account has been full of my friends all over the world heralding a US intervention. Um, but uh, it also raises interesting issues about uh, domestic and national, about non-state and state actors, and understanding uh, the, these issues as well. So the last thing I'll say um, on this is, what does this actually mean in terms of how we operate? And we'll get into some more of this into the back and forth. This isn't just a theoretical debate. If we believe in the importance of non-state actors, that has to be something that we train our personnel to do. So looking at more flexibility for personnel to spend a tour in the private sector or in the NGO sector or in the tech community is something we're trying to incentivize and expand upon. Getting people in training to make sure we're understanding these things. Speaking to the issue about applied mathematics, we've gone from a world of information scarcity 
to information saturation. So it used to be governments had a monopoly on a lot of information, and we felt pretty cool about it, and we could sort of outplay people because we had this much information. And when there's only this much information in the world, that's an impressive amount of information to have. But when the amount of information in the world suddenly fills this room, this amount of information just isn't that impressive. So understanding how we use data and diagnostics, understanding how we can leverage and design good policy in an era of, <clears throat> again, just levels of data explosion that are really hard to conceive gets into how we do information flow and programming. So I want to just end by saying this is not an abstract debate. This is about how committed we are to those global institutions and making sure they reflect the world today how much we encourage people to be out beyond embassy walls meeting with mayors and governors and CEOs and faith leaders and others, how much we're trying to take that accumulation of data to inform policy and decision making, um, and how we continue to, uh, to train folks to, to be relevant in that world. It's an exciting world, it's a dynamic world, uh, but it is a world that's going to require some evolution on how we think. Great. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, and I think the two key issues that I wanted to at least start with, and I'll, I'll ask Ambassador Mirpuri and Ambassador Faley to begin. The one issue is, is this indeed a different world? Are we in, do you think we're in an era that could be characterized as a Westphalian plus era where nation states aren't going away, but non-state actors now have, have the power to have impact on a regional or even a global scale, and these non-state actors can be good and sometimes not so good as we see a lot in the headlines. Mm -hmm. And then the second question, which I think is very important <laughs> as the United States heads into its presidential election cycle, this cycle probably more than most will be a foreign policy discussion because there is so much going on in the world. There is so much that is new. And how do you view this articulation of, of US strategy for the future? The QDDR was in, in many ways a US strategy for diplomacy for the United States going forward. And so do you, do these um, descriptions and does this strategy resonate with you? Are you dealing with many of the same challenges, and what's your view of how the U.S. might be taking on this, this sort of set of, of issues, both opportunities and challenges? And I'll turn to my, my good friend and colleague, Ambassador Mirpuri first. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Barry. And, you know, when uh, Tom mentioned about the role of the private sector, in fact, I, in the course of my 30-year diplomatic career, I had to spend a couple of years out in the private sector. But multinationals are as powerful as countries in many ways. And that was an interesting change. But first, you know, Taking the point of view from Southeast Asia and from Singapore, in many ways, the world hasn't changed. We still engage in state-to-state -state diplomatic relations. <coughs> if I had to map out the amount of time the Singapore foreign ministry or any of the Southeast Asian foreign ministries spend on non-state actors, I think it would be less than 5 or 10%. And even when you look at some of the uh, non-state actors that we have to deal with, and two that Tom mentioned specifically, the Islamic State, because they want to be engaged with a state, the conversations they want to have is with states, not with other non-state actors. And FIFA, until the US jumped into it, there was no mechanism to police it. So you still, in Southeast Asia, we recognize very clearly that the role of the United States is critical. It's been the big power. It has guaranteed peace and security in the Asia-Pacific since the end of the Second World War. As we discuss new challenges coming up, and some of these that uh, were laid out in the QDDR, 
inclusive economic growth, what we're trying to do in the region is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is an agreement between states to create frameworks for non-state actors like companies and enterprises to have a role to play. But the negotiations is among states. And when we deal with things like countering violent extremism uh, and the Islamic State, again, you turn back to states to having to deal with this. But putting that as sort of the, the big framework that we're looking at, it is in many ways a new world because of the reference to information. I think the new data coming up, the challenge of having to deal with a 24-hour media world. We would never have tweeted this conversation a year ago. Today, someone is watching, maybe even asking questions online, that this new information, this dealing with data becomes very challenging. And then you have, again, the asymmetric advantage that the US has, because the US knows how to deal with data. The US is a chief data scientist. I don't think any other country has got a chief data scientist to help deal with issues like dealing with data. Then when you come to countries in Southeast Asia, you know, we're many, many miles behind what we could potentially do with this information, even as this information floods into everything that we have to deal with. So you know, it, it is a challenging world. Those of us outside the US really have to fi figure out where do we fit into this world that is emerging and how does this shape into what we traditionally do with what we have to do into the future? And that's really how I see these things going forward. Thanks very much, Ambassador Mirpuri. Ambassador Feli, I'd love to hear your view on those two, those two big questions. I think what we have here, specifically in the Middle East, is uh, do non-state actors, such as ISIS and others, complement the state and work with, want to work within the state, or do they want to demolish the state and set up a new type of paradigm? So that's the key issue here, whether state versus non-state. The other aspect of it is us, more or less, are interacting in a real time. World crises do not take time to, for it to, to, to uh, brew and then flourish. But what we have now is an immediate issue. Our um, colleague talked about Twitter and others. Twitter, Facebook and others is used by a tool by ISIS in its uh, war specifically now, rather than just uh, the normal tools of communication. And that has an, an immediate cycle, psychological impact on the people, on the army, on, and so on. So I think there we need to know how much US and other institutions, multilateral or unilateral institutions, are agile in dealing with such a problem. And the bigger question is how much alignment between the US interest, or these multilaterals, versus the locality's interest in a sense of time. Time is a crucial factor. If the throughput of destruction is faster than the throughput of development or cooperation, then we'll have a challenge here. So I think that, that, that has to be taken into account as well. Yes, may Ambassador Dobryansky, please. May I jump in on this? I, I have to agree with um, the Singapore ambassador that uh, the nation state, I think, still is very important. But I also think what we've witnessed, in fact, not just recently, I'd say there's been an evolution over maybe the last several decades of where we've seen more the rise of non-state actors. And in this case, I'm going to extend that definition, not just to uh, the ones we're talking about in terms of the extremism category, but in terms of non-governmental organizations, the rise <laughs> of public-private partnerships, uh, the involvement extensively of businesses in so many different ways uh, where you may have certain businesses that are actually based in countries abroad and actually how those businesses conduct themselves can be a reflection of the values 
uh, attached to the particular country and where those corporations you know, stem from. So I think we've seen also another evolution when I think back with Afghanistan and then even stemming into Iraq and then even on health issues, the rise of coalitions. Coalitions which don't have executive secretariats per se, but actually come together or band together in a flexible way. You still have the attachment to the nation state, but you also have them coming together based on a particular cause and a belief that by coming together, they can deal with a situation more effectively. In the case with the health situation, I was in Singapore and we were discussing avian influenza. And there was a coalition that had been uh, had evolved and had been developed, and I think was a very effective one in dealing with the situation, providing information, raising the profile. So that's just another point. Let me add two more. In the report, uh, values are highlighted, and one thing that uh, strikes me, and I, I step back on this, is um, thinking about yes, the challenges to our alliances to the kind of uh, liberal world order that uh, emanated from World War II, the institutions that derived from it that were to hold the peace, security, provide for stability, um, and the values that undergird them. In this case, we've seen playing out in a different part of the world, in Europe, uh, with the uh, illegal annexation of Crimea, and the invasion into eastern Ukraine, we see a calling into question of these values of these institutions. But I would argue that ironically, I think that has also in some ways energized those members of that community to also look at those institutions, to look at those alliances and what they have achieved over this period of time and how important they are. Thank you very much, Ambassador Dobriansky. All very good points, and some of, a lot of which I think I saw in the QDDR as well. Ambassador Gundalovic, you, you also wanted to raise Well, uh, first of all, I um, agree with Paula and uh, Ambassador Mirpuri that uh, the nation state is still a cornerstone of diplomatic relations. But at the same time, uh, when this certain nation state is, uh, happens to be a democracy with uh, open internet and free media, it's actually subject to all sorts of uh, uh, divert uh, and undermining uh, uh, actions of uh, the other side. So in actually, uh, in a very effective way, uh, the other nation can influence your public with uh, all sorts of messaging uh, that goes uh, totally beyond your control. And we have always stressed that we do not want to control uh, the content of the internet. Uh, and this uh, messaging is uh, obviously uh, being shared. It's like a bushfire sometimes. And it eventually influences uh, the democratic process in this very country that wants to make some sort of uh, decision on the nation state level on, on diplomatic relationships. So in this way, uh, and it's always been here, like uh, war propaganda and all these things uh, have always existed. But uh, with the internet, um, it's been so effective and so cheap in such a way to 
to wage such uh, information war that uh, it has uh, had a um, profound uh, effect on uh, the decision making itself. No, I think that's a very important point, and, and I, um, I've had conversations with General Scowcroft where he, say, he says when people wanted to organize, you know, three decades ago, they had to print leaflets, they had to go door to door, you know, to organize a protest or something, and now the, the barriers to entry for mobilizing large-scale action from the bottom up on a, on a local, regional, or even, even global scale are much lower. And so I think that's a very new dynamic, as I thought Ambassador Faley said quite elo eloquently and has been sort of um, reinforced by these other discussions. But a question I have for, for maybe all of you, and including I'd love to bring in Ambassador Bilal and Ambassador Valdez, is do you feel as a diplomat that you have the tools and that your governments have the tools to effectively compete in this information, in this information arena that is 24-7, it's very rapid, um, it seems like some state institutions, including the reference, the, the discussion regarding the Ukraine crisis, seem to be better at this perhaps than others whom, whom you'd think would be very adept uh, because our societies are so used to the free flow of information. What, what's your sense of that? Well, I, uh, if I may, mm, I think it's extremely difficult because uh, uh, first, um, in our part of the world, uh, uh, we are very... Uh, uh, worried about uh, the state entering uh, the realm of uh, propaganda. And uh, uh, we're always uh, uh, very cautious about uh, uh, some sort of state-run propaganda campaigns. But as it, uh, as it is, uh, you have actually uh, very uh, unequal uh, combat of ideas that on one hand, you have a state-organized uh, and run uh, propaganda machine that is very effective and uses all uh, the uh, mm, uh, all the environment that we uh, have seen as uh, as uh, our uh, asset, uh, free internet, uh, uh, free media, and uses it very effectively. And yet, it is difficult to uh, counter it with some state-run. Uh, campaign, which from first, uh, uh, um, well, everything what's run by the state usually is not very effective. Uh, secondly, it uh, mm, smells by the state. So young people who are uh, from one uh, side sharing uh, information then, uh, that seems to be very uh, uh, attractive, it is, it is actually countering the mainstream media it's difficult that the state would actually be trying to set things up and uh, correct them. It is impossible. So how do you do it? I don't know. Uh, it's definitely uh, not about uh, um, subjecting uh, the content of the internet to some state control. It's definitely a very wrong uh, way to go, but I really don't know. It's a tough issue, and I, yeah. I want to bring our two ambassadors here into this conversation. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much, and I think everybody agrees with everything that has been has been said. And uh, uh, this is a very relevant topic that to talk of diplomacy beyond uh, non-actor, uh, non non-state actors, and uh, things go so fast that how can we adapt our ourselves? Uh, and uh, 
not everything that uh, is, is used by non-state actors or you see on the net is always uh, relevant. And so we, we keep adapting ourselves to what's, what's happening. I mean, if I give concrete examples of what's happening in, in Morocco, in 1990, we had maybe 4,000 NGOs. Today, it's uh, 100 16,836 uh, yeah, 16, exactly. And uh, involved in social nonprofit activities, involved in sports recreation, involved in education and training. And so you have always to, when you deal with diplomacy, you have also to, today, to take into consideration what's, what's happening. And uh, they play an important role and you have to involve them, otherwise things won't, won't work. And uh, uh, in, in, in any uh, issue, and when we talk of non-state non actors, I, I'm not talking only those who are in your country, but uh, for a country like Morocco, we have more than 3,000 Moroccans living outside the country and uh, very well organized and so connected to the country. And they are also a very important actors for us as diplomats, not only here in the countries where we serve, but also all around the world. And it's so interconnected. The, our problem is that we cannot go as fast as things uh, uh, move. And you, you, you don't have, uh, uh, in, in the embassies, an army of people. You have a limited number. And you have to try to follow everything, I mean, social issues, economic issues, cultural issues, and to be always aware of what's happening and what people are expecting from you. I will maybe enter into the conversation in concrete examples on how we involve and, and uh, we deal with non-state actors in Morocco and how much they are involved in what we do on a daily basis. Thank you very much. So in the dynamic stability strategy paper, we say that in order for countries to conduct effective 21st century statecraft, they have to be equally adept at 21st century streetcraft. And that is understanding the street, knowing how to leverage this, knowing how to compete in this inform information domain as, as we were just talking about. Ambassador Valdez, I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these many important issues. Thank you, Barry. Um, my first thought refers to the fact that you cannot look at this uh, issue as, a, as if one size fits all, because it is clear you have invited people from different parts of the world precisely because the definition of civil society or the definition of uh, social movement is different in different parts of the world. In Latin America, we have had an explosion, as Ambassador Bulal was saying. Um, I believe that um, up to the first decade of this century, we couldn't really say that Latin America had a massive civil society. We had trade unions, we had business organizations, but when you look at what is going on now, now you realize that you really have a civil society, which coming from what is called a new middle class, which is in fact new social sectors that have been brought up from poverty but have not necessarily leave, left their situation of poverty, have transformed themselves in social actors in order to demand from the state new services, uh, new type of education, new type of health, etc., etc. These movements are reaching out of our borders and are associating themselves with 
NGOs and movements elsewhere. The most important case, obviously, in Latin America is the indigenous uh, native population organizations, which are today very much linked among themselves. The Chilean Mapuches have relations not only in the United States and in Canada, but mostly in Europe. Therefore, uh, this is a new phenomenon, and uh, it is very, very important to work with it and be proud of it, because we believe that this is an expression of democracy, and this is an expression that democracy has really gained roots in our countries. But at the same time, uh, if you don't um, treat um, this, the, the, if you don't understand that there is a solution of continuity between the social movements and governance, you might come into the mistake of pushing for social movements uh, that establish a certain fragility for state institutions, political parties, etc. This is why I believe that the link in the document between uh, reaching to social movements and social actors and the state and uh, the, the nation state is extremely important, and governability is extremely important. We have seen in Latin America social movements in the past, and we know that they have ended up in very strong populist uh, governments and not democratic, democratic governments. Therefore, there is, I believe, a whole area of, of, of things that are extremely important. Of course, information and the new information has transformed the way in which these countries look at themselves. I was particularly attracted in the document by the mention to local actors and the relationship between diplomacy, international, inter international relations, and local actors. The fact that you have mayors in small villages, uh, the importance of local things uh, and, and, and to value Local solutions, I believe, is extremely important. Let me say that in our case, for instance, in this case, the case of Chile, the fact that we have established uh, associations, formal associations, between some states of the United States, uh, some of our regions, have shown to be extremely important for the development of our own regions. And uh, of course, this incorporates the, move, the social movements in the region. And the fact that the social movements in the regions feel incorporated to a discussion on the way in which universities, business people, small businesses, etc., can link and can establish links has become a very important part of our diplomacy. Therefore, I, I, my impression has, is that, as, as you have said at the beginning, this is a, an extremely important subject for all of us. And it is hard to capture. I think you're right. No one size fits all. One point you, you made I really wanted to stress, and then I'll turn to Ambassador Faley and, and back to Tom for his reaction. The U.S. intelligence community puts out a, a long-range projection every four years called Global Trends. And in the last one, you talked about the rise of the middle class in your country. The last one projected that by 2030, five-eighths of the world's population will be in the middle class. So an enormous shift. Uh, that would be the first time in human history. If that's true, then that, that middle class, which will be heterogeneous, but nevertheless will make enormous demands on natural resources, food, water, and energy, that's right. but also on governance. And so the sense one gets is that the restiveness that we've seen across the globe in the last even five years will grow. And so I think some of these challenges that Ambassador Valdez has just mentioned will continue to grow. And so I think governments, the, the kind of 
sort of um, uh, insights from the QDDR will have to be will have to continue to be built on. In, in order for governments to be able to keep up and try to get ahead of these challenges. Ambassador Fallon. I mean, I'll take your last point and then go Great. back. If you have four-fifths of the numbers talked about middle class, usual revolutions are led by middle class. So those who have no issue of self-income but an issue of social justice or injustice across the globe. So you have to be more uh, interconnected and more uh, tr transnational. The threat we have, and we talk about non-state actor in a negative way, unfortunately, rather than the positive way, which we should talk about, is that the, they are transnational. How agile are our own state versus if it's also United States? We do have a dependency on the United States to be able to resolve some of our own problems, which is to do with social media and others. Not the messaging, but the platforms of that. That talks about legislations and others. I cannot switch off a Twitter account. When I do that, State Department and others have to go through a long, painful process to do that if they can. So we have an issue there. We as countries, how agile are we in dealing with the structure, the culture required, the strategies and so on, in dealing with these transnational problems? We're not that agile. We expect the United States to be, but the United States is a big fish, big ship turning around in itself, it's required that as well. You also have an issue of perceptions of United States influence in relation to this versus the realities. Going back to, to your point as ambassadors, I'm sure our colleagues agree with me when we convey what's taking place in Washington versus what do they expect. It's not aligned, so we have an effort there. And I think the role of ambassadors, or at least diplomats, may have the job description somewhat changed as a result of this. So we need to uh, be more equipped and able, or at least empower, to be able to deal with these issues. And we, I think my colleagues may agree with me, it's not as easy as people expect us to be because we are constrained by certain rules and regulations. Thank you, Ambassador Bailey. I love your description of the US as a big ship. And I think what the QDR tries to do is is, is change the standard operating procedures of our, of our diplomatic corps in such a way that it becomes n not so much a big ship, but maybe a flotilla of little ships that are networked, decentralized, and very agile. But now I'll turn to Tom to get his thoughts on that as well as all these other issues. So many great uh, things that are raised. I want to speak to the fact that uh, the ambassador raised about the fact that this blurring of sovereignty that has arisen from the uh, emergence of a broader set of actors does create asymmetries between those states that tend to be more interventionist in their business sector and media sector than those that are not. Um, so as these things play out, uh, and the, particularly when you understand the role that can be played between a state-run media television, net, traditional television network and social media, uh, I've started a couple of online organizations in my life, uh, and you, it's the relationship between the two that is so powerful. Um, and it doesn't actually have to be orchestrated in the traditional way. In the same way that our business sector going out is a huge part of America's values and impact around the world, we don't actually control. In fact, one of the strengths of our businesses is that we don't control them, uh, and others do, and that creates certain asymmetries where you're able to run a state, uh, run business, et cetera. Diaspora communities were raised, a huge uh, asset, uh, we believe, in both directions for the United States, but it is something that, uh, that um, creates certain complexities. Um, and with that blurring of sovereignties, we see this in some very direct connections to governance, for example, tax base and revenue. 
um, when there's mobility of incorporation, mobility, not just traditional mobility of capital, but of incorporation of legal framework and of labor, given how much work can be done online now uh, and uh, outsourced and resourced, there are sort of new commonalities of interest between governments that are trying to create a credible business environment, but also a revenue stream to be able to make investments in infrastructure and, and public health. Uh, Ambassador Ball spoke to the speed issue, and I think that's another thing that we came, uh, came back to uh, again and again in this report. Um, part of the nature of the world today is that it happens uh, two things that are not traditionally government strength, speed and experimentation. Um, it's things happening very quickly and needing to be able to try a bunch of things to make one work. In the private sector, you can have plenty of failures as long as you net out positive. <clears throat> In fact, if you have no failures, you're probably not trying enough, whether it's in your stock portfolio or in your innovation uh, sector. Whereas, partly because of the dynamics of our open press and, and, and some of the hyper-partisanship here, if we are operating in an environment where government's only known by its failures, it creates exactly the opposite kind of um, ground that you need for this world, where it's like, okay, we're going to go try some things with mayors, we're going to try some things with faith leaders, and yes, yeah, some of those faith leaders may end up being problematic, but it's still important for us to engage 25 of them in the hopes we find 12 or 13 uh, who are constructive partners, instead of the idea that if there's a single one that ends up becoming a problem, uh, that's what's going to be run on the news and, uh, and hearing. So there are certain um, uh, disconnects between the way the world's operating and how we've traditionally uh, operated. Um, and I do want to say as well, and I, I say this as someone who's been in the citizen sector before, uh, that the citizen movements have become more powerful than ever, but they are more talented at this point in being opposition than in governing. Uh, and we see this in movements, particularly accountability movements around the world, in making that move into making sure that we use the same creativity and tactics um, in trying to govern. Last point on uh, the issue of localities. Uh, a couple of things. One thing just to note here, um, at a time where our Supreme Court today apparently shot down uh, some of the regulations relating to mercury that will have impacts on the climate uh, issue here, you have the state of California that's actually already moving forward with a tradable permit scheme with Ontario. So it's sort of unthinkable a generation ago that two states from two nations would simply enter into that kind of mechanism. And I'll be honest, there's some people at state who are very excited about that and some people who really don't like the precedent uh, of something that is absolutely in the traditional realm of nation state to nation state. But what we see is states and cities going in that direction. Uh, and the last note I'll say on this, just because as I mentioned to folks in the green room, uh, I just spent a, a luxurious week in Idaho uh, hiking, camping, and fishing, um, is simply the fact that if you had a conversation about what America means with the people that I was with in Idaho, you would have a very different conversation than you would have with the people in this room or the average set of folks in Washington. And I think we just want to make sure, again, back to how we operationalize this, that when we go to a country, we're not just engaging in the capital, we're not just engaging with elites, because the elite gatekeepers in all of our countries cannot control information and opinion to the same degree that we once could. That's positive, that's got some disruptive elements to it, um, but in the same way that I wouldn't claim to understand this country if I'm never spending time in Idaho, we just want to make sure that as we're engaging, we're doing so uh, well beyond capitals. Thank you, Tom. Ambassador Bilal? Yeah, I, I wanted to, to come back to concrete uh, examples and things that have been done. And uh, 
Uh, I will not comment on what the Americans are doing, but I can talk about what we are doing in, in Morocco. And let me mention how we have been involving non-state actors for now more than uh, uh, 10, uh, almost 10 years. We, uh, His Majesty the King launched in 2005 what we call the National Initiative for Human Development. And what is interesting in this initiative is what the aim of it is not only reduce poverty, increase social and health services, provide training to local communities, and create uh, economic development projects. But this interesting is how it is uh, organized, the governors, the governance of the initiative, which is considered as a non-state actor. It's composed of individuals uh, belonging to uh, elected local bodies, uh, decentralized state services, and NGOs. And the way uh, it's a very important fund. The first uh, five years is what $1.4 billion that were put in this fund. The non-state actors in all over the country are the ones who present projects. It's not something that comes from the state and say, okay, we uh, see some weaknesses in a region or, or, or in a sector and we should be uh, doing something. That's the role of the state everywhere we do that. But we also, you involve your local communities and they come with a project that they have been shaping themselves. We will fund the project and then they will be implementing the project uh, themselves. And in the past 10 years, almost uh, 9.7 million people benefited from that, 50% in rural areas. And 20% uh, of, of all the 38,000 products that were implemented by non-state actors themselves uh, are related to income generating activities. And this has been a very, very successful program that now is taking place and in which the non-state actors have really the feeling that they are the ones who are changing things in their, in their region. We have not been doing this only domestically, but in our strong relations with Africa, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, we have been expanding the experience and involving non-state actors in uh, various uh, uh, sectors like banking, social housing, infrastructure, electricity, uh, water management, agriculture, communication, technical assistance, and vocational training and education. Only on education, the uh, Moroccan Agency uh, for International Cooperation belongs to our foreign ministry, uh, gives uh, support through scholarships, 8,000 African students who study in Morocco, in universities, in schools, and 43 African countries. So it's something that not only you can do locally and involve non-state actors domestically, but you can also involve them in the international cooperation that we are having. And I will come back later on to countering violent extremism, because I started by uh, human economic development, because these two things are very much linked. Very much. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Right. Ambassador Mirpuri. Thank you. So we're also nice and polite to each other. Let me just challenge Tom on something. You spoke about this blurring of sovereignties, and 
yes, it's a very nice diplomatic approach to things. But I don't think, for example, the US Treasury sees it in that way. As they try to implement FACTA around the world, as they try to implement unilateral sanctions around the world, that defines as one way of looking at these things, the US way. If not, it is not acceptable. Now that is very, you know, in the end, it's, it still comes back to my original point. The US is in the lead on these things. And then telling the rest of the world you have to follow us on many of these issues without an opportunity for a different input because the US has decided we need unilateral sanction on a particular aspect rather than going to the UN, which has a role in, playing, in enforcing and putting in place sanctions. It creates difficulties for smaller countries around the world. How do we keep up with these pressures? The way the Treasury runs factor, it, it makes it very complicated. You speak about tax issues, but the US tax code is basically impacts every US expatriate around the world and impacts their ability to operate around the world. So I, I think that we need to be quite clear. There is a US up there, and then there's the rest of us. And in many ways, the US still sets the rules. And if the US says that diplomacy in the future is going to play, be played in a fairly different format because we've got new social media tools, I'm not sure if all our countries are ready for this. Some of the challenges you spoke about, Barry, about dealing with societal challenges, which people, they may have these issues, they may pick up these views from around the world, but they expect their local governments to deal with them. They do not expect that the US would come in and deal with my challenge of energy or water or food. What is my local government doing with it? And I think that's where some of this disconnect takes place between where they have a global view of things that they pick up from NGOs. And NGOs, again, I, I respect the role of NGOs, Paul, that you mentioned. But NGOs take up a cause. Governments have to govern for a whole wide range of issues across all causes. Not every cause is going to align with, with, with other causes, but the pressures of social media is making it a lot more complicated for governments to deal with it. And then my final point is really, let's go back to what the original role of diplomacy was. My role here, and I'm sure all my colleagues' role here, is to influence the US government, as the US ambassadors around the world attempt to influence us. And as you have these new tools, I'm not sure whether we really need to get into tweeting and Facebook if, at the end of it, the basic point that I'm here for is to influence the US government. The rest of the things are interesting to do. They're a good part of public diplomacy, but it may not get me any extra points when I'm trying to get a, a perspective across to the White House or the State Department or the Department of Defense. Let, let me give Tom a second to answer that, and then um, to Paula. But I want to also come back to, come back to you, Ambassador Mirpuri. I mean, a lot of ambassadors engage, and I know you do this too. You go around the country, then around the United States. You want Singapore to have a good image in the perception of the U.S. population, and that's important for a number of reasons, too. And it's not necessarily a dominant factor. Your, your number one job is influencing U.S. government policy. But how do you think that's rising in importance because of this information explosion? Well, just a quick answer, yes. yes. I mean, the, the number of uh, opportunities that I take in order to go out, partly, of course, to see U.S. from a different perspective outside the Beltway. I think that's very important. But also to put across a Singapore point of view about the relationship, whether it's in Alaska or Florida, you know, across the whole country, I think that's an important part of diplomatic role. So great set of questions and challenges, and I'll um, try to engage on that. First, I think I would love to quote you to many of the president's critics who say that America has lost its influence when you say there's America and everyone else. So I think that'll play well here on the home front. Um, 
I think that, uh, so a couple of challenges back and then try to, to embrace. I think, as you know, countries do engage to advance their own interests. Um, the United States has tended to see a certain set of values as part of its interests, and that gets into a blurrier area for some people of what's an interest and what's a value, and we can have that debate academically. But there's no question that our goal around the world is to advance the interests uh, of the American people. Now, we believe that as a matter of grand strategy for decades, we have, as I said at the beginning, um, believed that helping other nations to grow, and particularly the middle class of those nations to grow, and to help build a system of collective security is in our interests at home. Trying to address climate change and climate stability and resilience is something that is of our interest, but we also believe that we can only solve that together. So, uh, you know, I, I am not going to suggest that we walk on water and have never done things at odds with the countries with which we engage, uh, but I do think that, and to some extent, the FIFA scandal goes back to this, and I won't mention who's on the other side of that. There are different worldviews in terms of the set of values, and I think corruption, we ask our corporations to meet a very high standard with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, that, frankly, puts them at a competitive disadvantage in many countries, uh, but we leave, believe as a motive, matter of values and of medium to long-term interest that promoting greater corporate accountability uh, is, is a value. So we do advance those and, and I think we continue to embrace them. But I'll mention two, two challenges on that. One, I think one of the questions that we make if we start to be a little less delicate with each other uh, that this is getting at is if, our, if traditional diplomacy is about me trying to influence your country to do what we want, does it also in today's world involve us engaging in non-state actors that may have influence with you in order to influence you to do what we want? And I think that's a line that at one point in long ago would have seemed almost conspiratorial, but today would seem crazy not to do. And so I do think there is some way in which the traditional idea that if it's just a foreign ministry doing a demarche with another ministry, uh, and that's all diplomacy is left with, I think its relevance will decline in the century ahead. Um, and so I think that's part of the gray area we have to get into. And for us, transparency and other elements are part of how one does that. Um, but again, to engage in beyond the ministries can make certain ministries very uncomfortable. But in today's world, I think that, so that would be the tough challenge I would have back. The last thing that I would say, and it's as much a question as a comment, something I've observed. Um, global millennials, uh, meaning all over the world, people say below the age of 20, um, don't seem to have quite the same enthusiasm in my experience for the UN system and international law as, say, my generation being the last of those who saw in the 90s and elsewhere this moment of maybe post-Cold War this will emerge. There's a certain sense of skepticism about the international institutions. How representative are they of the world? Are they operating effectively? And so I think a lot of our assumption is the alternative to the U.S. doing this by itself is that system. And I think the question that we had in this report, in a way, is, is everyone around the world bought into that? Are we at a point that that's essentially what people want, a little more modernized, a little more representative, but essentially that system and set of institutions, or do we need to think sort of beyond that structure and set of norms, particularly with the younger generation that's coming up? Thanks, Tom. I promised to go to the audience, so I'll, but I have very enthusiastic ambassadors that, that still have things to say. I'm going to ask uh, Ambassador Dobriansky, Ambassador Faley, um, and, and, uh, and Ambassador Valdez for very quick interventions. <laughs> Very quick, and then we'll go to the audience to broaden the conversation. Ambassador Dobriansky. Thank you. I, I have three points. First, I'd begin with this. I think that, because of your comments, I think we have traditional diplomacy, despite all the sorts of changes. For example, uh, if I want to demarche you, I could, of course, send it over an email. But 
in terms of its impact, I won't have a personal touch. So some of the traditional slow ways still matter. Because if you want to have an effect, you have to have some connection. So I'd start with that, that even with all the changes and the adaptation, there are, there's a certain foundation that I think undergirds what we do and how we do it as part of a nation state. I'd say, as Tom was speaking, what popped in my mind, I'm a student of Joe Nye up at Harvard University, and he wrote the book on soft power. And so I'm thinking all of these elements are part of soft power, as he put it, um, uh, uh, in terms of the attractiveness. Your policy, putting your policy for, forward, and influencing and making it attractive. But let me also add in this, uh, in this uh, mix, there's another fact, and that is we have become more globalized. So you go from traditional, we become more globalized, and that was at least the point that I tried to make earlier, that with globalization, we also have new forms of conducting diplomacy, but I don't view that as uh, uh, undercutting traditional diplomacy, having coalitions, maybe having, like in Latin America, new economic, uh, a variety of economic fora that have uh, uh, come up. Um, there are many at the regional level, the global level. I see many of these as assets, and I do see them as opportunities. They could also be challenges, but they are tools with which we could use. Last point. I wanted to come back to the ambassador's point about information. And I thought, I, myself, I happened to work at the, when it was independent, the United States Information Agency, USIA, that has the radios and it has exchanges. It's now part of the State Department. It has the Bureau of Educational Cultural Affairs, exchanges. Well, the question is, you raised very, very good points. In fact, there was a debate in this country about whether or not that should come into the department or stand alone. But I will say this, to me, that's one of the biggest challenges and where you find the right balance. And why? Because you could have a policy, a good foreign policy, but you know, another country may not understand it at all, no matter how clear you think that policy is. And let's say you go to a local level, uh, there, as you mentioned, being out you know, in the United States, you know, and you have a certain perspective. So information and how it is cast matters because policies, breed certain impressions. They could be wrong, they could be right. And I don't think, I think in my view, that is one of our greatest challenges, particularly with the fact there are so many different information platforms that one could use that it's almost overwhelming and one overtakes another. It's a real challenge. And that's one that I, I think, to ask Tom in the QDDR, I didn't quite see that addressed. You know, how do you address public diplomacy and how it should help the articulation of one's national security policy? And you'd think, Paula, on that question, that the place where messaging and, uh, you know, creativity really springs from uh, in the United States in particular, you'd think we would be better at that, but somehow it's not translating into government sort of application in the, in the information domain. I have a two-finger intervention, for, uh, intervention from Ambassador Gondalovich, and then we'll go to our uh, last two interventions before uh, we brought Very, in. very quick reaction. I think that the, the danger is that um, soft power and public diplomacy are the first uh, 
to be reduced uh, uh, when it comes to any uh, cutbacks or something like that. So I think that if, uh, you will emphasize this in your document and you were really, uh, I mean, as uh, you say, uh, put the money where your mouth is, uh, uh, this would uh, extremely uh, improve chances that uh, US uh, policies will be indeed understood uh, around the world because uh, you will have uh, the resources uh, to, uh, to explaining them. Uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know the number of uh, uh, visitors who've been visiting US under the USIA or now it's called uh, vis uh, whatever, International Leadership Visitor Program or whatever. I'm afraid that these numbers have uh, um, have been reduced, at least from uh, from our country, and that's bad. I mean, this is where uh, you lose an opportunity to explaining stuff, to uh, uh, to creating allies uh, who will uh, be able to further uh, stand by uh, the values uh, uh, we all represent. And, and this is at a time when that battle, the information and ideas battle, is really under assault uh, on a couple of fronts at least, if not more. So very, very critically important. Ambassador I'll, Fowley. I'll start with the policy, finish with regard to globalization. I think it's important that uh, the blurness uh, in relation to sovereignty is comprehended across all. Although we will give up something for the sake of cooperation in another area. That has to be aligned across. Otherwise, it will become as though U.S. is too powerful or trying to cajole countries into certain domain where they don't want to be. So to do that, we need more dialogue. We need to have a better understanding of U.S. decision-making and U.S. empathizing with what's taking place in our region and reflecting on that. So I think that's another aspect. In relation to hard power and soft power, maybe I'm wrong, but I think the projection is that cyber and financial controls will become a hard power in the very near future, rather than the F-35 or other tools. In that sense, US will have a dominance. For us to hook into that process or cycle, or for US to have better comprehension of its multilateral responsibility is another challenge. That the, other, the final point is, from a global threat point of view, Maybe where I'm wrong, but the U.S. indecision whether does it want to be isolationist or it need to deal with other issues is in itself a threat. People perceive it differently. Countries will be better utilize that. It creates a stalemate in Russia, in, uh, for example, in Syria, because the U.S. versus Russia reading it might be differently and so on. So I think here that have a United States is a big player. It has an impact, whether it's, it needs it or not, wants it or not. I think it has to be appreciated. We have to appreciate and dialogue with the United States more. And Ambassador Fowley, I think that's a, a <clears throat> critical issue to re-raise. I mean, we've really not addressed that as much in this discussion, and I'd like to over the next uh, 45 minutes, which is the U.S. role in the world. As, as you said, the U.S. is a big ship. It's a player, whether it likes it or not, and when there's a perception that it's not there across these different instruments and domains, <coughs> it creates issues. We, as, as diplomats, I think my colleagues will agree with me, we do have difficulty conveying that to our countries and saying what's taking place is uh, more of a strategic shift rather than conspiracy, for example. That's an issue which we want State Department to help us with. Yes, I said before that I, I consider that uh, this 
perspective of diplomacy or the, the, this vision of diplomacy, of, of non-state diplomacy, is extremely valuable in terms of con the consolidation of democracy. But it can be, the, the, the question arises, as it was said, on the relationship between state diplomacy and non-state diplomacy. How do you know that NGOs are going to influence governments or are only to uh, annul the action of governments or are going to surpass the action of governments? As you said, I was in Haiti for three years. I lived there. And let me tell you that the action of NGOs in Haiti was a disaster, a complete disaster for a long time. I'm not talking about all of them but I'm talking about most of them. And this situation annulled completely the possibilities of the government and even of local governments to act. Then the question of American influence in a situation in which you have a very weak state or you don't have a state, but you have some groups that are linked to American organizations can become a very serious problem instead of an advantage. In the situation of Latin America, and I, in this, uh, as, as you said, let us not be as kind as we are always. Uh, let me say that social movements have much more memory of what happened between the US and Latin America during the 60s, the 70s. And therefore, from that point of view, uh, the work with the uh, non-governmental organization and the social movements, I think it's quite positive and quite important. Because what you are, or what we are all promoting is Stability, democracy, participation, moderation, and not radicalism. Fortunately, we don't have the problem of international terrorism in Latin America up to now. But in these conditions, I believe that the effort of working in this non-governmental or non-state area is extremely interesting, and it is very important to continue this discussion. Excellent. Now I'm going to turn it to the audience, um, finally, and I think first up, Randy Ford, if you could identify your name and affiliation. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Uh, Randy Fort with Raytheon. Uh, pre previously served as an Assistant Secretary of State, so I've had some experience in that institution. Um, hovering over this entire conversation is a cloud. It's a virtual one, but it is, a, is an immense cloud called technology. Um, and that technology is growing and changing exponentially, literally, as we speak. Um, 3D printing, um, autonomous systems, um, the Internet of Things, um, to name uh, robotics leading possibly to artificial intelligence. Um, and so on. Um, Ray Kurzweil, the futurist, has suggested that we will achieve 20,000 years of technological progress in this century as compared to the, tw at the, at the rate of change of the 20th century. If he's wrong by orders of magnitude, that's still a stunning change. And it would seem that that technology is only going to further empower individuals, small groups, corporations, if only because governments are so sl slow and not agile and not able to adapt. And having worked at the State Department, I, I, can, I can certainly confess to that. Uh -huh. Tom, I, I appreciate your, your travails. Just trying to get the department to stop producing written reports and put everything on wiki and save a quarter of a billion dollars proved to be an impossible task, to name just one example. So as you look forward, given this reality, this is happening. This is not going to be stopped. There is no King Canute that will keep the wave back. What will the impact on diplomacy be in that future when individuals, small groups, companies will be further empowered, that centrifugal force will grow at exponential rates. How should we think about diplomacy in that environment? And we're not talking decades or in the year 2100, we're talking in the next 5, 10, 15 years. 
Uh, so let me <clears throat> jump into the river of depression uh, with a couple of comments <laughs> and then say something more optimistic. Um, I, th I think we have unfortunately not fully, um, well, I think parts of the government um, and the foreign policy establishment have absolutely understood the transformative power of technology. Um, it is extremely difficult to get that adapted, uh, both operationally and in terms of our thinking. And you mentioned a couple of things. One of the things that the futurists write about, and obviously they're more optimistic and pessimistic uh, folks in that world, is the issue that uh, technology and automation could have on uh, massive short-term unemployment in some countries that could prove to be extremely disruptive. Uh, I would add in that that technology is also actually exacerbating rather than undermining um, the power of othering, essentially, of whether that's across sect, uh, race, ethnicity, et cetera, that while modernity over the long term may well help to modernity and technology to ruffle, the, to, to iron out uh, the divisions of the other, in the short term it cr creates tremendous capacity uh, to organize people against uh, an other, again, whatever line of division that's on. So, you know, it's true that uh, if there's a short-term disruption, if you look at what we went through in, say, the NAFTA WTO period in certain parts of the country as the richest country on earth with tremendous institutions that were able to develop, it was still quite disruptive in a lot of communities. If you go into countries that may not be as developed and you have a short-term shock uh, from automation and technology, um, the natural tendency is to turn against an internal other or an external uh, and, and use aggression. So I think when we think about technology, that's one place to be really concerned about, and I'll get to good news in a second. Uh, the other thing I think that we uh, sometimes don't fully address is, is uh, and, and this isn't the dominant view in the State Department, but I do hear it, is when people refer to the inf information revolution in the past tense as something that happened. Um, oh, remember before we had email, before we had the internet, without understanding that that is child's play compared to what's coming next. Um, and so this idea that we just need to simply um, amend around the edges the way we do information flow or consume information um, is completely missing the point in that trajectory between uh, states' relative comparative advantage in information versus where the world is is going to grow and that delta is going to marginalize a state over time if we don't address it. Obviously, there are tremendous attempts, uh, some of them more successful than others, to address that internally. So uh, absolutely, I think, uh, throughout this uh, is that. Obviously, the other side of, we know all the, up, we know many of the upsides of technology. If you look at advances in public health, uh, advances that growth in the global middle class, the interconnectedness, we're talking about changing our hometown diplomat program that uh, Secretary Powell uh, created, uh, which is a great idea for people to go home and talk about the world and their communities. Uh, you don't have to go home anymore, right? Our ability to be able to engage Americans directly in the countries that we're in and help make sure we're, we're helping to create a global, globally educated American populace but also finding that small town in Chile and connecting them to a small town mayor in, uh, you know, in our country that may be dealing with similar dynamics, a farmer to farmer, those sorts of connections can be tremendous. But, you know, they're going to have to be fostered. So I think we see the ups and downs of technology, but I think, un you know, one of the most important messages we've tried to get through in this process is, again, this isn't something that happened, it's happening, and it's accelerating, not decelerating, and the impacts of it are going to be transformative. Ambassador Fowley and then Ambassador Bill. I, I used to be a, a program manager with Yuri Pekar before an ambassador, so let me give, put that hat on and, and respond to this question in a way. You do need to be agile in the sense of your structure to accommodate for that. So the state's current structure, rigidness, need to be fluid to deal with the challenges. The challenges in itself was seeked as an opportunity with regard to Arab Spring and dialogue and so on, but it was hijacked. So it was the right 
uh, objective, but it was more or less the, the wrong uh, result for it. So I think in that sense, we need to be more aware of these tools, reflect on them, you better utilize them. But in our region, social media is used more of, as a consumption rather than as a tool for development. So we need to have more, for example, loans provided by banks so that we promote more entrepreneurship for better utilization of social media. In, in that sense, we, we are in a catch-up mode, but I think it's a necessary thing we need to think about. That it's already there. We need to see how best utilize it for the benefit of all uh, together. There are always, Randy, there are always challenges with new technologies, as we very well know. I mean, even just where we are now, there are challenges. But I would err on the side. I'm more of the optimist. I think the uh, areas that you outlined, and because I had global issues, all of the technologies really can make a difference in terms of improving people's lives. One of the areas I didn't quite see, you know how you have climate change, but is the energy area. And oh, the technologies that are afoot in this area can provide so much for people worldwide uh, in terms of getting clean, affordable uh, energy, and which would have ramifications for climate change. But uh, I, I, I just say that I see this as a plus, and one thing that I thought was very good in the report, there was also a section on innovation. And innovation is, uh, is part of that. It's not only for technologies, but pursuing innovative strategies in many different areas. That's something that absolutely is essential for national security and foreign policy. Ambassador Mirpuri, Singapore is one of the highest tech countries. I think I, I know that your, your country's got a handle on 3D printing and these other technologies coming out. Well, as a small urbanized country that is so connected, we have 120% internet penetration rate. You know, everyone walks around with two mobile phones that you have no choice but to embrace technology. But in embracing technology, you also have to, for, for governments, you have to realize that the populations, even in a completely urbanized place like Singapore, five million population, everyone is literate, that not everyone is technology literate. And what do you do then to move them forward? But we have no choice. We've launched something called the Smart Nation Program that uses technology, the Internet of Things, the cloud, and then trying to embrace a lot more of bottom-up ideas. It's no longer a top-down world that says, we've got to do it this way. Once you have this data, and making this data available to people across the whole spectrum of society, that says maybe we'll do better healthcare, better uh, transport using all these technologies. But the other way that Singapore also has to balance is we're a very good friend of the US, we're as you know, well connected with the US, we do economic agreements, security agreements, but we also, in a way, play a bridge to the rest of Southeast Asia. And there are parts of Southeast Asia that are literally in the Stone Age. It's all right to speak of 3D printing when you've got power. When you have four hours of power a week, you know, there's no way you'll get a 3D printer to work. And that's not a priority when you do get the power on to get a 3D printer to work. So Singapore, in a, in a sense, is interestingly interesting place because we are a very advanced region, Southeast Asia, taking urban centers in Southeast Asia like Bangkok, Jakarta, Manila, they are as moving forward as, as quickly as possible. But with 700 million people in the region, not everyone can come up today. So how do we strike this balance between this very, very advanced world coming in and everyone else who's being left behind and really not sure how to go forward? Thank you. Ambassador Gandalf. Just one uh, remark about uh, the challenging environment in a technologic-driven uh, uh, world. Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. Uh, 
uh, two very powerful tools to uh, uh, carry across uh, information uh, uh, to um, maybe influence uh, uh, or uh, give the information to those who do not get them uh, from their own media. In uh, the old days, I mean, it was like uh, uh, every uh, evening people would uh, turn on the radio and listen to Voice of America because they didn't have uh, uh, truth in their own radio. Today, if, you, uh, if the Radio Free Europe wants to uh, broadcast to Belarus, for instance, uh, it's not such that they wouldn't have uh, any radio there or they wouldn't have internet or something. So uh, these uh, tools actually compete with a very uh, competitive environment where information actually is uh, blurred, is uh, uh, piled one on each other, so it's very difficult to find out what's truth and what's not. And uh, to compete in this environment, it's much more challenging than it ever was. Uh, these days, we actually celebrate the 20th anniversary of moving Radio Free Europe from Munich to Prague, so we are somehow connected uh, to uh, that institution and uh, we are uh, very close to discussing with them how they can actually uh, compete uh, with this existing uh, world of informational technology. Thank you. I have another question from um, Dr. Brimmer in the front row. Thank you so much for the stimulating discussion. Esther Brimmer, a member of the Atlantic Council Board and now George Washington University and former Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations. And just a couple of thoughts. The first to say about one of the roles of technology, it does allow us to be more responsive to our own publics. That part of the responsibility of being an, an official of, of a democracy is making sure that your own public understands the policies that are being pursued in their name. And the ability to make documents available to the public much more quickly, I think is extremely important. And in an era when you have so much information, being the reliable source of information can be helpful. So to be able to say, these key documents are available, you can have them in real time, I think is again a service to the public in general. Secondly, um, I would say, reinforce the point that Ambassador Dobryansky made about the, that these, the sense technology allows us to support traditional di diplomacy, which indeed I would agree is not going away, and that it does allow the ability to have information available real time to people who are in the middle of negotiations, having, you used to have delegations sitting in, for example, United Nations loco locations, rather than going in with three feet, of, of three feet of paper documents, it was much better to be able to sit there and use the Wi-Fi at the UN and look up the last 10 Security Council resolutions or whatever you needed. You could be more efficient and provide information to everybody involved in the negotiations. I, I think it also uh, allows us um, to look at a greater expertise. There's a greater need also for greater regional expertise, greater use of languages and study of languages and access to information, which is also possible with the spread of technology. And finally, spending a lot of time now as I do at a university, I would suggest that, that, uh, that young people are just as engaged, but their definition of international organizations is very different, that they are also looking at all types of connections that are allowing them to understand societies in ways we did not before, and that includes the ability to study abroad and study internationally gain the depth of expertise, which is still fundamental to diplomacy. Thank you. Thank you very much for those four points. Ambassador Bulal. Yeah, I just wanted to come back also to uh, the four issues that have been mentioned and, and uh, how uh, technologies now have been used to uh, spread extremism narrative. Mm -hmm. And how do we combat that? Because when you see how the net and how these technologies are used to spread 
this uh, violent extremism and, and the impact it has all over the world and the surprises that, that came when we saw that we thought that it was only limited to some areas in, in, in some regions and now it's all over the world. And how do we use now the, these technologies to counter the extremist narrative? How can we stop what's happening and the way these technologies and the net and social media have been used in a way that they became a danger to our own societies and, and our own population. So I think this is something we should also now start talking about. Uh, <coughs> uh, yes, I believe that the question that was posed on technology had the um, implicated that, uh, in fact, more than diplomacy in a context of technology, technology was transforming itself, society, in such a way that networks and dialogue between citizens and groups would surpass any uh, capacity of diplomacy to act. Um, the point is, uh, if uh, the US uh, trusts or believes that this uh, phenomenon of expansion of networks uh, in the world favors its own interests or not, then comes the ambassador question. Uh, internet does not necessarily produce uh, good results. But, as I was called here as a Latin American, I have to reflect on my region. The sole fact that internet would be accepted in Cuba uh, will produce enormous positive results in Cuba in terms of tolerance, pluralism, and capacity to generate democratic processes. Nobody doubts that. Then the question is not linked to internet necessarily. It's linked to the way in which our societies have evolved and in the deep problems that our society might have more than in the use of internet. Thank you. Two very quick things. One, as someone who uh, won an election and lost an election, I think it's important to know that I don't only support democracy half of the time. Only lost um, with both <laughs> the democracy and with the internet and technology, we take the good with the bad, and we are making a hedged bet that says on net, we believe these things are going to do more good than harm over time. We're going to do what we can, I think, to you know manage some of the downside effects. Um, but it's true. You can't have the power of a truly open and global internet, uh, truly free internet, without having, uh, without enabling bad actors as well. And so in some of these cases, again, I think we make as a matter of grand strategy uh, a decision to be all in. And I just want to step in one other uh, hornet's nest uh, that I think has been underneath a couple of these questions, which is that we are going to have to have a conversation about the relationship between this new uh, transparency that is available, that is so powerful, and whether there's any room left for secrecy in diplomacy. Um, and uh, we saw this play out to some extent in the trade authority debate here in the United States uh, with the expectations. We have ongoing conversations, obviously, uh, in Vienna at this moment. Um, and there's another sensitive issue which has come up in the wake of, uh, say, Wiki and Snowden which is if you're looking at the best way, best place to put a road or a hospital in a developing country, uh, you could run a multi-year, multi-million dollar study of dynamics, or you could go and get the phone records and look at population trends and be able to come up with what's probably a better policy solution, cheaper and faster. 
but we know that privacy matters. And so I think both in the ongoing functions of diplomacy and also as we look about the power of technology, we all are involved in this country to country and civil society to civil society. We're going to have to figure out the balance between, uh, between these things. For public policy not to use big data, um, would you know looking out 20 to 30 years would be crazy not for that for that not to be informing things like where to put hospitals and where to put roads and at the same time we know citizens for good reasons of all of our countries have deep concerns about this so I think that's another one of the uh, the places where we're going to have to make sure that our dialogue is uh, is in touch with where the world now is thanks Tom I, I wanted to pick up I want want to ask the panel to pick up ambassador Bilal's you know very large question but in light of this, discussion and the, the dynamics that we've been uh, addressing. How do we counter extremism? It seems like extremism is gaining because of this set of new information tools. I think some of the questions have pointed to new tools that are going to make the job potentially even harder. But can government counter non-government extremism spread on, on the internet through social media? Should government be using proxies more as some of, uh, as some of our adversaries? are using? Should government subcontract it to proxies who can react much more quickly, perhaps much more effectively? How do we counter extremism, which I think is the most prominent near-term example of, ha of exercising diplomacy in a world that's very dynamic and very driven by people power? I don't know if any of my ambassadors want to pick this up, Ambassador Feli. Okay. I mean, you always, states always want to have more control than they do have. And uh, non-state, adverse non-state actors always want to challenge that as well. To a certain extent, what we have in, in our region, for example, we should not expect the United States to lead in providing the key messaging, how, because this is more to do with certain religions, certain drives, certain cultural narratives. However, to provide or to give them breathing space for the politics to play, the United States may need to play a role there to help in the, in the, what you might call, the infrastructure for that messaging, I think the United States can play a role there. As to some of the problems are to do with the alignment of nation state versus the current challenge. In our own region, what I call it, I call it an issue of harmony between your aligning your culture versus your religion or their ethics versus the state and how it's been formed. In that sense, alignment, we should not expect the United States or others to lead, but to provide some breathing space that we do. So I think there's a, a, a complementary role for all to play, but we have to all agree, start with, is that this threat is immediate. It's not a perceived threat, it's an actual threat. Ambassador Gondolovic. Well, I liked uh, your uh, comparison with democracy that uh, we actually don't cancel democracy and uh, free elections just because sometimes uh, people elect the uh, wrong people. And so in this uh, very same matter, uh, we shouldn't be uh, threatening or encroaching uh, into uh, the freedom of the internet uh, just because it carries across uh, bad messages sometimes. And uh, obviously governments uh, should uh, deal with uh, the causes of the bad behavior in their own societies to, uh, to deal with extremism that has some roots and uh, to deal with uh, conditions uh, where people get uh, uh, somehow uh, recruited uh, because they feel 
uh, disenfranchised or they feel simply wrong uh, uh, in their own society. So I think that uh, governments uh, should do uh, should deal with these causes rather than trying to uh, to limit the freedom of the internet. The, your question about to what extent governments should use uh, uh, the internet itself in order to counter message. It's a very touchy thing because again, as I said, uh, usually uh, what governments do in these environments uh, is so visible and sometimes so laughable that uh, uh, it won't work. And again, I don't have the answer, but uh, the fact is that uh, we've been seeing in Europe uh, uh, this, uh, I would say, dark side of the internet that we have not been able to deal with yet but yet wielded by another government, <laughs> which I think is the interesting thing. I mean, so it's doable, a different system, but I think we need to think hard about how we can leverage the internet in this battle, you know, on the internet, even though, even though we're coming from free societies where certain things are touchier than others. Barry, I just, want to, to, then, uh, I just want to respond uh, to or compliment what our colleague said, uh, the Ambassador, but if, if your body cannot accommodate with a virus such as the extremism we have in our region, surely as a government we have the minimum requirement, whatever doctrine we have regarding the roles and responsibility of the state, we have a minimum requirement of putting some antiviruses in the superhighway so that such malice, such a evilness should, should be filtered. That's a minimum requirement, so we do have to put legislations and others as well. As a government, regardless whether we're democratic or not, I think there are certain areas which we have to put our foot down and say enough is enough in relation to this. It's not an issue of freedom here. It's an issue of encroaching on uh, what you might call uh, uh, removing others or not allowing any discourse to be discussed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more of a, an antivirus to, to, to counter that. I look at this question through a broader and different, uh, different prism. I look at the fact, starting with the United States, we have the challenge of people wanting to come to this country. Why is it that they want to come to this country? And regardless of what they may read on the internet or what they may see, they want to come here because there are educational opportunities, there are job opportunities, there, there's an environment that is conducive to uh, uh, advancement. And in that sense, to answer your question, I don't see it as one singular, I mean, you put it sort of in a single context. It's a, it's a broader issue. It's a broader issue about values. It's a broader issue about governance. It's a broader issue about education, about uh, livelihood. I, I see it in a much broader context and one that is playing out in many different sectors. I think something that, going back to the beginning about traditional diplomacy, I think something that unites all of us is the commonality in, in strong values. Values of decency, values of transparency, openness. And so this is a battle of ideas. It's a battle playing out in a broader context, of only which this is one piece. That's why I started with why is it that people come here? It's a broader image. It's not just that single piece. But I do think it's important. I mean, the reason I raised it, Paul, but I agree with everything you said, as always, 
Um, but truthfully, but the reason I raise it is because it's proven to be such a powerful tool True. for recruitment, in particular for ISIS. We can't ignore True. it. We have to do the other things, but we have to do but, that well. But my point is, to back to you, you're right, but you also need to think about the broader whole and not yes. only one yeah. space. It's a tactic or it's a, it it's is. a part of and the It is, and as I agree with uh, Ambassador Gondolovich's comment, you know, in terms of the broader environment, it does matter. I'm, I have three ambassadors. I mean, to speak. Could I, Please. just because I, it refers to what Ola was saying. <clears throat> in our case in Latin America, as I said, we don't have the extremism in the same sense that in other areas of the world exists. But we have the drug problem. And the drug problem is a very serious problem. It's related not only to drug traffic, but it's related to organized violence, to gangs, to the real dis destruction of states in Central America. We don't know what to, how to use internet to, com to combat this, this phenomenon. We have never tried, I believe, to use the internet and use communications to face and to confront drug traffic in these countries and, 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 and the drug uh, consumers in these countries. Therefore, the question you're posing, which is fascinating, and I understand perfectly well its importance vis-a-vis -vis ISIS, is, is, is a wider question. How do we use internet in these broad uh, needs that most of the world has to confront these plagues or plagues? Just two quick things. Uh, one, um, how many of you send more than 15 or 20 tweets a day? Tweet? Right. I send 10. 10, right? <laughs> so, it's, uh, so part of what uh, several people mentioned is it costs nothing to send a tweet. So if you're on the side of the equation where you can try 500 messages a day, and you know you're trying. What are the things that that work on Twitter? It's got to be immediate reaction to what's going on, and it has to be snarky, um, and ideally it has to be adversarial. Um, and these are not the things diplomats do traditionally. So I think there is, to me, there is almost no reason that the government shouldn't be trying to communicate messages. But it's going to have to be, and I think states trying to do this under a set of rules that is not the sort of thing we operate under now where many of our ambassadors live in fear that a single, or just say a junior officer, that a single tweet might get them brought in because it upset this person, that person, whatever. You can't tweet a Just don't be on there. Just don't do it. Don't have TweetDeck open. Don't, don't try to get creative. And so I think if we're going to try to communicate these messages, we have to understand what's different and effective that is almost antithetical to what diplomacy has traditionally been like on a daily basis and create, uh, create that space. The second thing just to mention is I think this issue about trying to make sure we're addressing root causes, and this is where diplomacy is really in, in the lead. Uh, just as one note, because we tried to, to practice what we preach, we applied some data and diagnostics to our report, and there was a 400% increase in the use of the words corruption and accountability. And that wasn't a coincidence. It was interesting because it came to the fore on our democracy governance folks, but it also came to the forefront with our economic development folks, what's going to create inclusive economic growth, and our preventing violent extremism uh, folks. We can get into how much is ideology, how much is jobs, but real and perceived injustice is clearly an exacerbator and major factor. So it's both communicating the message, but it is also having something to communicate, and I think in there, uh, there is an effort here to address on that. 
Yeah, very, very quickly. The answer to, to your question is definitely yes. We cannot just let the net open to those who will just spread this violent extremism. We have, we have to, to act on, on three uh, channels. One is to fight poverty and exclusion. It's very important that the economic issues are uh, in our mind. Second, we threaten security. And three, we have just to work on the internet. And uh, I would like to come back to a very important question that my colleague Ambassador Faili raised. Uh, if if you, your kid come back from school and uh, come back and tells you a very strange idea, you will immediately react and go to the school and go to, to uh, everybody there says, well, how come are you trying to put these ideas in, in the head of my kid, this is, should be permitted, and even you will change the school or we will complain. Do we accept everything in the net? And I think this question, this question will come back, will come to us more and more now. We have created a tool that is wonderful. I mean, we are connected all over the world, but there is everything in that. And, and uh, craziness is entering into, into the net and the, the creating disasters all over the world and everybody is suffering from this. But as soon as you say this is, shouldn't be in the net, there is immediately a reaction that's, oh no, that's uh, the freedom of speech. I don't think that showing someone how to um, make a bomb is a freedom of speech. I mean, there are things that in the net that we should react. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have to block things or to stop people from expressing themselves. But you don't let this tool just go wherever and, and becoming something that is now uh, acting against us, acting against our societies. We have to put this question on the table and start to say, what should we do all? And it's, it's our responsibility, all of us, not only one country or the other, but it's a, it's a real question that we cannot control. Our kids are on phone, on, on the, the, the um, internet every day, and we just don't know what they are looking at and, and what is the influence on them. I think there is a balance, that question that's, that you're raising that I think is important and relatively less addressed in the US, I think, on this, on this particular question. Others. Um, we have a question in the second row. Very patient. I want to. Th I'm Mitzi Worth. I'm with the Naval Postgraduate School, but I live here in Washington. I guess I find some things that are missing. One is the the concept of complexity and getting academics to talk about it. But we live in an unbelievably complex world with so many pieces. The other is one of time. And we, the one thing that's constant is we have a 24-hour day. And I'm struck by my daughter who grew up here in Washington, is bright, works in public policy out in San Francisco. For three and a half years, she had a subscription to the New York Times and never found time to read it. <laughs> but, no, but I'm just, I'm talking about the, the time pressures we live on and what a change it is. And my observation is, at least in the United States, we have the least informed public because there's so many different channels through which we can learn stuff, but we tend to choose one. So I, I'm struck by, we want to have a democracy, but it is so bloody hard because of the technology. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but 
I'm a social anthropologist by training, and I look about, th this is all about people and how people respond, and we don't have simple answers the way the international relations guys still talk about whether or not it's about economics or about realism. We don't have those simple answers, but they're still teaching that. So I don't quite know what the answers are, but I'm overwhelmed by all of this, and I have less time than I've ever had in my life, and I'm sure the rest of you feel that way also. Tom is going to relieve us of this burden and tell us the answer to this question. <laughs> um, your daughter's going to be fine. Um, so I think a couple of things that, uh, that we're just going to have to track with this. I think the first is the discomfort that um, we can no longer consume all of the information that exists on any given topic. Um, so if you are an officer in country X and the tradition is you get up and you read those newspapers in the morning, maybe every six months McKinsey or the Atlantic Council puts out a report on your country and you read it, um, you are then the most learned person on the things and then you go out to the market and you talk to your six friends who, you know, you're academic, you're a business leader, et cetera. That's just not going to cut it anymore. Uh, the volume of information is such that this is part of where it's, it's no longer the possession of unique information, it's the ability to uh, filter and leverage information that will be the comparative advantage going forward. And this is something, frankly, that some of our diplomatic corps will have to unlearn, which is that hoarding information is a form of power uh, rather than sharing information. That open source information not only may be able to complement, but may in fact be quite a bit better than what we have inside. Uh, so I think the way that, but we haven't developed yet is the, the right filters for that, right? And in fact, this goes to a second problem we have, which is the ability for self-selection and self-validation in our consumption of information. Um, we no longer have these gatekeepers where there are three nightly news programs and they decide what everyone should it read. It really interesting right. and easy back then. <laughs> so whether it's Fox or MSNBC or Russia Today or what have you, um, and Twitter is the same thing, who you choose to follow. It, you know, Even if you have those couple of friends on the other side of a debate, 90% of your Twitter feed is reinforcing a, a, a narrative. So we are going to have to figure out those filters uh, and ways to, to consume that information in a new environment. Ambassador yeah. Kelly and then Esther Brunner had a two-finger interview. I mean, <laughs> a reflection of that, as ambassadors, we are sometimes puzzled how much macro versus micro we need to follow on things. And when journalists contact us or tweet us or whatever, then they ask us the reaction to something. You need to understand what was the issue, what was the background, fact from fiction. So in that sense, I think it has to be, uh, we need to be a bit patient. But as of now, I think there's a two-second delay between the mind and the body in reacting to that sort of situation. Our governments may not fully appreciate the sort of the, 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 the influx of, of data on us uh, and expect us to react to it. As an example, going back to your Twitter, uh, I was somewhat a pioneer in our, my government or foreign service to use Twitter. But I'm still very wary about, very careful about these tweets. What do, do I What do I even retweet, let alone what do right. I do? So I think it's an ongoing development process. And you're prolific on Twitter. I know that for a fact. No, so. um, I'm going to give Esther Bremer the last um, intervention, but I'm going to also warn the ambassadors. I'm, I'm going to do a lightning round. What does all this mean for the U.S. role in the world? Is it going to grow, change, different, or and, and or what was your greatest takeaway from this discussion? 
Very quickly, two fingers on that to say that actually the international relations people aren't just teaching what we used to teach before. And I was going to say, actually, you come to my class where we talk about the U.S. world order, we talk about filtering information. Because as we prepare, whether it's the junior diplomat in your office or the student in your class, what you're teaching them is how to filter all of this enormous amount of information through expertise so that they're able then to channel and prioritize what's important. And that way you can use that information again to advance diplomacy and the communication amongst peoples. But it starts off with the We may need that course for diplomatic versions. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, ambassadors, what's your greatest takeaway from this conversation? Or what do you think this all means for the U.S. role in the world? Are we sure, going down well, the road? I'll, I'll start. <laughs> Fine. Uh, my, my answer is going back to your original question about the U.S. role and right its implication. I don't change my answer in terms of the U.S. role. I think the U.S. should have a leadership role uh, uh, globally. I think it has the capacity. I think it has the capability. But I also believe that leadership role should be working very closely with our uh, alliances, with our friends, and battling, as we've enumerated here, uh, those uh, radical and those uh, threats to our national security, as well as that of our alliances and friends. I would say that what I take away, I actually, despite some of the challenges that have been enunciated here, I actually, I, I feel very um, heartened by the conversation. I think it's an exciting time. I think it's a time of change. I think it's a time of opportunity. And I think it's a time in which we need to be agile and flexible in the way in which we conduct our traditional diplomacy. This breeds opportunity. Well, again, I agree with uh, Paula that the US role doesn't change. From around the world, what the world wants is U.S. leadership. Now, it, it, the way that this is done is it may be adjusted, but in the end, it's the rules and norms that the U.S. helped to set up over 50 or 60 or 70 years that become then necessary for the rules and norms for the next 50 years, whether it's how we use the Internet, whether it's rules around cybersecurity, it's how do we deal with these issues of people being recruited online. I think everyone looks at the U.S. for that role to play. We may have individual, regional ideas or specific ideas how to deal with certain these things, but I think the U.S. leadership role is just not, is, is just cannot be dispensed with in the, in the foreseeable future. And what I take away from this whole conversation is, you know, this is probably the only capital in the world having these discussions. And I think that's a good thing. You wouldn't have these discussions in any other foreign ministry or any other capital around the world where they do have think tanks. But it's still going back to old traditional style foreign policy issues and realist political issues rather than ones related to looking at the Internet of Things, looking at the future. I think that speaks to the strength of the U.S. That speaks to the strength of, strength of education system. We speak about education, where you are now starting to put some of these institutions around the world. And how do you connect all these different parts of your foreign policy, whether it is using the military tools, the economic tools, the social tools, educational tools, how do you connect all of these? I think that's going to be the next challenge as we, after, you know, for the future. Thank you, Ambassador Mirapuri. Um, Ambassador Gadalovich, well, any last words? Well, I think that uh, we have actually uh, reached a level of, uh, I would say, uh, openness and uh, uh, dealing with the non-state actors that it uh, 
may not be changing uh, in the near foreseeable future because it always goes like in steps. It uh, reaches some level and that it stays for some time. I mean, I don't think that the Internet of Things uh, will greatly influence uh, uh, the role of the United States in the world, so to say. So maybe we have uh, found ourselves uh, at the moment where the Internet is free, it's carrying across uh, messages, good or bad. Uh, we know uh, all the new uh, phenomena. So uh, I don't think that uh, this will actually uh, itself influence the role of the United States in the world. And the role of the United States may be influenced uh, by, uh, I would say, the heart uh, diplomacy or heart uh, security, hard things, uh, uh, the uh, military spending, uh, uh, the quality of uh, the alliance uh, in NATO and uh, other alliances. So this is what will determine the role of the United States, not uh, the fact whether uh, you will tweet more or less, because we already have reached that level of openness that, in my view, will not influence the role of the United States uh, um, in any foreseeable future. Thank you. Ambassador Yeah, I mean, uh, I've just uh, opened my... Th I use two messaging messengers, two Facebooks, WhatsApp, uh, Viber, Twitter, messaging, e two emails, and they have to be connected all the time. So what I take away from this is I need to be more efficient. <laughs> As, because I'm not going to get more channels and more time 25 hours a day. From a US perspective, it needs to be more informed, specifically for the decision maker. Otherwise, more or less in largest box of knowledge and how its decision making is is made as a result of that. Otherwise, I think this influx will never will become a tsunami and we will never be able to filter. What we will miss is that an 18 year old unemployed or somebody who, who's overpaid because of he's from the all countries who will, will miss big, sort of a big virus will come over him which we will not be able to filter across. That's the danger we have. Ambassadors, any last thoughts? Yeah, uh, I take over. First, let me point out that uh, this uh, wonderful conversation on this uh, very relevant topic was taking place in a non-state actor. And uh, <laughs> Atlantic Council have been, and so how uh, the non-state actors are doing in the United States. I mean, the role of the United States is big and will stay, will stay big, and this leadership is important. But I think it should be conducted with a better understanding of your partnerships and uh, partners and a, a better respect of their uh, sensitivities and, and their uh, particularities. Thank you. Very important point. That Ambassador Bulal took what I wanted to say. But <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my observation is, uh, I, and I already mentioned it, is that the complexity of this task is enormous. Um, my impression is that the United States will be more influential or less influential or less effective if the relationship between state diplomacy and, no, and diplomacy towards non-state actors uh, is not well fitted, is not really uh, adequate. 
Um, it is clear that in my country, when an NGO comes and creates an uproar because they don't want an hydroelectric plant in a river down south, the people believe that it's the US that is doing that. Uh, people don't say it's an NGO. And this generates the type of confusion that a diplomacy oriented towards NGOs, non-state actors, will necessarily create. Therefore, the creativity that the State Department and uh, the, the US government will have to show in coordinating this relationship state-state with non-state actors is something extraordinary. Uh, and I'm very happy that uh, something like this seminar shows that you're open to all sorts of suggestions and debates on this issue. Thank you very much. Very well said. Tom, last word? Sure. Uh, first, I'm going to have to slip out right after this. So if anyone had remaining questions, you can email me at periellot at state.gov um, and uh, continue the electronic communication that we all love. Um, th two quick things and just an example. I think one takeaway from all of this is that we, you know, if over the last 20 years we've gone from sort of the baby swimming pool to the full-size swimming pool, the next step is not actually to the Olympic-sized pool, it's to the ocean. And you use a different set of tactics if you're searching for a lost person. In a baby pool, you just look. In a swimming pool, you have to organize differently and recruit some people. In an ocean, you're using a whole different set of technological tools. So I think we need to be prepared as we move into this uh, oceanic world of information uh, that we're not just trying to use the same techniques. So that's point number one. Point number two is not so fast. Uh, states still matter, traditional diplomacy still matters. Let's not create a false binary where that means we stop doing things that are more important than ever, which includes personal relationships. I think that's one of the things that came through in the report. Human-to-human -human contact, uh, not over Twitter and uh, not over email, is incredibly important across nations and also where we can be a bridge for non-state actors to talk to non-state actors. Um, and I think the example I'll just use to close with is where we are on climate negotiations right now. The negotiations building up to Paris in some ways are very traditional 20th century diplomacy. It's nations coming together to try to set uh, timetables and limits. But at the same time, you've seen non-state actors driving, and in this report we talk about uh, a commitment to working directly with mayors, mayor to mayor, on where cities uh, can be involved. It's got not, we can't do this without nation states coming together, but even if nation states come together, it's still not going to fully harness what's needed in terms of technology, the private sector, cities, and others. Uh, so I think these are the two realities we face, and to the extent the United States can be on top of both of those, uh, making the most of traditional diplomacy and understanding the very new environment. Uh, it'll be a good thing for the U.S. interests and hopefully for the world ahead. Thank you very much, Tom. And before I ask you all to join me in thanking uh, our ambassadors, this is the, another in a series of events under the Atlanta Council's strategy initiative, gaining international perspectives on the U.S. role in the world, especially as we enter a presidential election season, is more important than ever with all of these new trends, all of the old trends continuing and combining. And so we really value your input. Uh, and we also greatly value our diplomatic community here in Washington. So please join me in thanking our ambassadors for this roundtable. <laughs>